Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Good evening. By pressing play, you've unlocked a door with the key of imagination. Beyond is another dimension, a dimension of sound, a dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. Welcome to Agoraphobia, the Agora Podcast Network's spooktacular month of ghoulishly engaging content, celebrating the spirit of the Halloween season. So turn on all the lights, check all the closets and cupboards, look under the beds, and continue, if you dare. And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the names of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power, and his seat, and great authority. In the hellish conclusion to Agoraphobia 2021, Bree and Fry from the Pontifacts podcast join forces with the Cannonball's Claude Myron Goozer to dissect and reanimate one of the most famous, prolonged, mass media scares in history. I don't know. What do I say? <laughs> Hello, it's spooky or something. I'm Fry. And I'm Bree. Hey, Fry, do you remember the Satanic Panic? Um, I did not live through the Satanic Panic. I mean, I guess I kind of did, but... You lived through the Satanic Panic. <laughs> <laughs> but I know of it, yes. So, the Satanic Panic, the fervent moral and religious freakout of the 80s and 90s propagated by television hosts, high-profile media trials, and thousands of unsubstantiated claims that wanted you to believe that satanic cults were everywhere, had infiltrated every facet of life, and were performing occult ritual abuse on your children? That's what we're talking about. The frantic fear that caused parents to disavow perfectly benign things like Disney films and Dungeons and Dragons? As works of the devil? Yeah, I remember the Disney films. Works of the devil, man. Now, did you know that all of this world-changing, life-ruining, 
culture-defining hysteria all kicked off because of an entirely fake book written by an extremely unethical psychiatrist from Victoria, B.C.? Um, you know, you have mentioned that, but also a fake book, you say, inciting... It all started in Canada, so strap in, because we're going to talk about Michelle Remembers. Michelle Remembers, or its full official title, Michelle Remembers, The True Story of a Year-Long Contest Between Innocence and Evil, was a book published in 1980 by psychiatrist Lawrence Pazder and Michelle Smith as the culmination of 10 years of psychiatric treatment during which, using the now-discredited practice of recovered memory therapy and 600 hours of hypnosis, Michelle Smith allegedly recalled a year's worth of extreme satanic ritual abuse she was subjected to by a satanic cult. So let's get into it. All right, let's, let's talk about whatever this is. So Michelle Smith initially began treatment with Pazder in the 1970s, after experiencing depression following a miscarriage. And during these sessions, apparently Michelle claimed that she felt that there was something important to express, but that she couldn't really remember what. And this, over a few sessions, devolved into her screaming uncontrollably and speaking in the voice of a child. And this is where Pazder began to implement hypnosis and unproven leading interrogation techniques of recovered memory theory to uncover these supposed memories of what happened to Michelle to cause such an outburst. Well, what came out was an absolute bombshell. During these treatments, Michelle began to allege that at the age of five, she was brutalized tortured and used in demonic ritual acts by a satanic cult of hundreds of members, including her own mother. Okay. In the book, Pazder initially alleged that this cult was the Church of Satan, but withdrew this claim later on when the head of the Church of Satan, Anton LaVey, threatened to sue them for libel. Yeah. He's not about this life. So the claims that Michelle made were elaborate and dramatic, and if you are squeamish, this might be a good skip point because we're going to just dig right in. So she recounted being tortured by being locked in a cage with snakes and spiders, being force-fed worms, urine, and human flesh, being sexually assaulted and forced to bathe in the blood of dismembered babies, and that she was forced to witness black mass, animal abuse, and slaughter, as well as human sacrifice. Where'd they get enough babies to bathe in? Six dismembered babies. Like, someone's gonna notice that those babies are not where they should be. Ah, it's funny that you say that. <laughs> We're gonna get to that. She also recounted a ritual designed to summon Satan that apparently occurred at Ross Bay Cemetery in Victoria. Over a period of 81 days, in which Satan did appear, but Michelle was saved by the appearance and intervention of the Virgin Mary, and Jesus, and Michael the Archangel, who all apparently decided to heal all the evidence on her body of the previous torture, 
And at this time, the divine figures also locked Michelle's memories of all that happened away so that she could remember them at a later time. The right time. Sounds made up. Sounds fake, but okay. All of this is coming out in Michelle in these hypnotic sessions. And what does her psychiatrist do? Well, it's definitely not go to the police and report these allegations of serious crime and murder. No. And it's definitely not try to attempt to find any corroborating evidence of the claims or interview anyone else of Michelle's family to get any sort of foundation. No, no. Pazder, the devout Catholic who was already pretty obsessed with the ideas of non-traditional occult religions and secret societies, particularly those of a West African variety, decides instead to write a book detailing all of the accounts, present it as entirely true, and then sell it for publication to the tune of about $340,000, which is about a million dollars today, and then goes on a book tour. And then, <laughs> then he and Michelle both divorce their spouses, abandon their families, and get married to each other, because that's how ethics works. That's weird. Yeah, that's very wrong. That opens up a whole can of worms. But the response to this book is massive. And when I say massive, I don't mean that it was brought out into the public to be subject to basic scrutiny. I mean that the book became a new gospel and exploded public imagination with shock, horror, and panic. Based on this book alone, Pazder was now accepted as an expert on satanic ritual abuse, which is a term he coined, by the way, and suddenly was like giving lectures on secret satanic cults and going to the Vatican to warn them of satanic danger which I really wish I could have found more information on, but they seem to suppress that quite a bit. And he's also consulting on cases where similar accusations emerged. Because after the book was published, suddenly there were thousands of similar claims being made all across the United States. It was suddenly as if there was a secret conspiracy of Satanists working all across North America full of wealthy and powerful people and law enforcement officers and daycare workers, all systematically abusing children in rituals to the devil. Accusations were coming out in absolute droves, and Michelle Smith and Lawrence Pazder were there to consult and influence them all. (sighs) Are you frustrated with these people yet? I am already mad at them and their made-up stuffs. So one of the cases that they consulted and influenced was the infamous McMartin preschool trial, where one family was accused of an excessive amount of satanic sexual abuse of the children attending their preschool. The whole preschool. Yeah, and after meeting with Michelle and Pazder, the claims were as outrageous as Michelle's. The the children claimed that they saw witches fly, and that there were secret tunnels under the school, and that children were flushed down toilets, and so much more. Mm. So yeah, Pazder had met with many of the parents and children involved in the case, and by all accounts, everyone acknowledges now that he definitely influenced the testimony. Of course he did. 
And just like with Michelle, these accusations are mostly being collected using recovered memory theory and coercive and suggestive interrogation, this time on very young children. So it starts to get very crucible up in here. The McMartin trial, by the way, resulted in no proven allegations, no conviction, and a complete drop of charges, but the investigations and trial took seven years and ruined that family's life. Wow. Yeah. And the media attention didn't stop there, as Smith and Pazder went on their US-wide book tour. Michelle even appeared on the Oprah Winfrey show, along with another and equally fake satanic survivor where their stories were presented as entirely true, which only further fanned the flames of public imagination, panic and fury, and resulted in more accusations. But fortunately, not everyone was prepared to take Michelle Remembers as the unquestioned truth that the media was presenting it as. And it wasn't hard to find immediate inaccuracies in the book. For instance, one of the first things, Pastor refers to the Church of Satan as an institute older than the Catholic Church, which our podcast would very clearly demonstrate is laughably untrue. And so skeptics began to look into the claims of Michelle Remembers, and with even some very light investigation, many of the stories contained within the book begin to fall apart quite quickly. First off, Michelle Smith's father actively rejects all of Michelle's supposed memories. Not only is he refuting her, Michelle also had two sisters who are conveniently never mentioned in the book, and also categorically deny any of these supposed events that occurred within their family home or to their sister. They were dismembered babies, no. Yeah, they're like, maybe my mom's not a Satanist. Unfortunately, Michelle's mother, who features prominently as a Satanist in the book, died in 1964 and therefore couldn't defend herself. Oh, God. But the rest of the family expresses nothing but shock and horror that Michelle could make such accusations against her. Michelle also described the majority of the rituals, including that massive 81-day one, as taking place in Ross Bay Cemetery in Victoria. Now, Ross Bay Cemetery is pretty central to downtown Victoria, across the road from very active businesses, a popular beach trail, and surrounded by residential housing. Many investigators and the Old Cemetery Society of Victoria all make it very clear that in this community of mostly elderly nosy neighbors, there's no way that a massive group of cultists would have gone unnoticed hanging out in the cemetery for any amount of time, let alone for months at a time. Right? And if she were screaming, often, as she reports, there are plenty of people around that would have heard. Not to mention her descriptions of places within the cemetery are very inaccurate. Like, there's a mausoleum that she stated was used for a ritual, which is nowhere near physically large enough to contain the amount of people she describes. And there are tombs she describes as having lids that are lifted off easily, and, and those just don't exist in Ross Bay Cemetery. There's also a car crash caused by the Satanists that Michelle describes in detail, including the place and date on which it happened, 
and details of a dead woman in the car. But there are absolutely no records of a car crash at this location any time around the alleged date, despite a robust media reporting of any car accidents in the local paper at the time. There is also no reports of any missing women or children or babies at the time that Michelle alleges all the human sacrifice was regularly occurring. Someone's gonna miss those babies! Yeah, someone, like I said, someone is going to miss those babies. And most damning, perhaps, Michelle's school attendance records reveal no absences. Particularly no 81-day stretch absence where she was supposedly being used in a non-stop Satan summoning ceremony. Equally, there are absolutely no records of any of the injuries that Michelle was said to have sustained. Which, of course, they claim because they were miraculously healed by the Virgin Mary later, but seems very convenient. Extra convenient, since a medical examination conducted on Michelle as an adult after the publication of the book concluded that she had no evidence of injuries worse than a banged tooth as a child. Wow. Right? She was a very healthy and robust child by the sounds of it. And quoting an article written by Tristan Hopper, quote, A rash that Smith claimed had been caused by the tale of Satan was found by a dermatologist to be a reaction to a toxic weed likely aggravated by life boy soap. What? Not the tale of the devil. No. Soap? <laughs> soap! Life boy soap. Apparently it will aggravate weed rashes. There you go. All right, don't use that soap. So in short, nothing from Michelle Remembers has ever been corroborated by evidence or testimony. No abuses. No missing persons. No murders have ever been confirmed. No mass amounts of Victorian citizens are walking around missing their middle fingers that they chopped off for black mass rights. And no culprits have ever been identified. Quite simply, none of it ever happened. Michelle's supposed memories are likely the influence of an unethical, egotistical, fanatical Catholic psychiatrist obsessed with the idea of a secret religious society taking advantage of a fragile and impressionable woman and her desire to spend time with him. And unfortunately, neither Michelle Smith nor Lawrence Pazder were ever held to account for their false testimony, despite inspiring thousands of others like theirs and terrifying a nation for a decade. Are they still alive? Pazder's not alive. The okay. last that I heard, Michelle, is, is still alive, but she was working as a secretary in a... In an unknown office. Oh, someone cancel her. Immediately. Right? <laughs> Immediately. It's been too long. And what's most horrifying about this is that the claims of the book are so insidious that so many people still believe that they're true. There are still lots of people who think that this really happened. And the closest we come to any sort of reconciliation on this issue is that recovered memory therapy that's was used to allegedly get all of these suppressed memories, has been discredited and suppressed as a practice. And the testimony of children is now much more heavily scrutinized and made sure that they're not exposed to influencing and leading witnesses. But after all of this, there's still so, so, so much that can be said about the satanic panic. 
And we're going to turn it over to our esteemed Agora Network colleague, Claude Myron Guzer of the Cannonball, for another ridiculous look at how these completely fake stories influenced a whole nation for a whole decade. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. So why am I so scared all the time? I keep asking my therapist and she only asks me back, why do you think? And I can't really find an answer. I mean, I know why things are scary in the present. COVID, kids, money, the stress of being a piece of shit adjunct in an academic system that can and will chew me up and spit me out at a moment's notice. But why am I so scared all the time? Always. Always have been. Why is there always the nagging fear that something is down there waiting to get me, waiting to hurt me, waiting to hurt the people close to me? Something I can't see, something I can't know for certain, but something that is contriving even now to come and take it away, all of it, at any second, to destroy or to transform irrevocably every stable thing I think I might have into an absolute of brokenness. Why am I so scared? My parents were good people. We always had enough. I wasn't abused or beaten. But I'm scared. Always. Because there's always something hidden all around me. We pretend like things are okay. But it's always there just waiting to jump. I know. You saw the title, Satanic Panic, and this isn't about me. This is about mass hysteria. This is about the belief that the people you trust are secretly working against you to undermine your whole place in the universe, to destroy the world. I mean, literally destroy the world. They're working for the literal devil, and they want to, in a very real way, unleash hell. And they're hiding in plain sight. People tell you it's silly, but isn't it just a little plausible that somebody somewhere believes in this and could secretly be working to infect every institution to bring it all down, to turn it into the demonic opposite of the stable structure it is now? Okay, maybe I'm starting to understand why I'm scared. Because I didn't see too much of the satanic panic firsthand, but I was there. I grew up in the 80s, and it was in the air. All around. 
whispered by youth pastors in our church, who warned us about the lyrics in the doors, a spy in the house of love. That's Satan trying to sneak back into paradise, right? And the eagles, Satan is indomitable. No matter how you try, you just can't kill the beast. There were codes, there were signs, if you only knew them, if you could decipher, if you could see what the real reality was. You had to be on the lookout, constantly vigilant, constantly watching. The loss of your soul was just around the corner. That's how it felt. That's how it always felt in the 80s. The satanic panic was a part of a larger context, or several contexts overlapping at once. In her book on the Salem witch trials, The Witches, Stacey Schiff carefully lays out the ways several overlapping contexts help explain why the people of the Massachusetts Bay Colony were not backwards, uneducated, superstitious fools, but people at a breaking point. They'd performed a coup that sent the governor back to England and were waiting to see what their new charter would be or if they would even have a new charter. At the onset of the outbreak, they had little to no central authority. They were biblical literalists, not too uncommon at the time, and they wrote their legal codes according to their biblical understanding. If it says in the Bible that witches exist, then it does. And if it says in the Bible that witches shall not be suffered to live, and it does, then the legal code must reflect that. Cotton Mather penned a bestseller outlining the exact symptoms of witch possession, so a framework was established to explain what people were seeing or thought they were seeing. But maybe most importantly, the whole colony was reeling from the on-again-off-again wars against the French and the Wabanaki, wars fought guerrilla-style by the opposing armies. Salem Village was a place where many displaced people from the wars ended up, so to say they were traumatized is an understatement. Even a paranoiac sometimes has real enemies, and maybe the life and soul-threatening powers weren't supernatural forces lurking in the New England forests. But the Puritans weren't wrong to think the destruction of the whole colony could be just around the corner. And what were the contexts in the 80s? There were two ads for made-for-TV movies that aired the same year that absolutely terrified me, and I still think it sums up in a nutshell what the 80s, at least the early 80s, were like. There was The Day After, a film about World War III that featured images of neutron bombs disintegrating people. In the ads... They ran the shots of neutron bombs disintegrating people. I learned about the idea of hell because of that movie, because I told my neighbor who was older that it scared me, and he told me not to worry because the Russians had a lot of bombs and we had a bigger bombs and World War III would definitely destroy the world, but it'd be all right because we would all go to heaven and they would go to this other place, hell. And then there was Adam, a dramatization of the kidnap and murder of Adam Walsh, son of America's most wanted host, John Walsh, who'd been playing a video game demo at a Sears and then was snatched outside. And days later, they found parts of him in the Florida waterways. And I didn't see the movie, but I saw Ronald Reagan give a message before, or maybe it was after, about missing children. And we had a Sears that we would go to, and it had an Atari demo, and I liked to play it while my mom looked around. And I was 5 in 83, and I got lost in that Sears, and it could have been me. It could have been my family, disintegrated, and how would anyone know I was good and wouldn't go to hell? And was I good? Well, alright, maybe we should call my shrink, because a bunch of stuff just personally began to click. But I honestly think those two made-for-TV movies are polls for thinking about how the satanic panic emerged. Broadly, the Cold War was winding down. I mean, by 91 it was over, but it heated quite a bit before it cooled completely. 
and everyone around me seemed certain that the next big war was coming and it was going to be bad. And kids were in danger or they needed protection, but who was going to protect them? The home life model of the early part of the century had given way to a situation where both parents worked and kids, young kids, needed to be somewhere. If they were too young for school, it was daycare. And if they were in school, they ran home, took the key from under the doormat and ran inside, turned on the TV and waited and waited and waited while the shadows grew and it got cold and eventually mom and dad got home. How did you know your kids were safe? How did kids know they were safe? Every year there was another presentation on stranger danger. Your kids had to put their safety in their own hands. They were the ones who had to avoid the lurking stranger. They were the ones who had to just say no. All while you waited for the bombs to hit. Just say no. Another context that gives a clue to this simmering paranoia that your principal was a Satanist or your accountant was a Satanist, or your mechanic was a Satanist, and they were all in this together. They were working against you underground where you can't see, waiting to do awful things to your children. You know, the ones you can't keep watch on 9 to 5 because during those times you're in the office. Just say no. Drugs and drug users. And when Nancy Reagan told me and Arnold on different strokes at the time, I didn't know it was about the hippies, but it was all about the hippies. It was the counter-counterculture, the reaction to social changes of the past two decades, seeing the social changes, the enlarging of civil rights, America finally living up to some of its promises, seeing all that as a change in the wrong direction, as a threat. That's what the Reagans were all about. They aligned the Republican Party with its big business interests with the Christian right, which historically also had big business interests, a plug here for Kevin Cruz's book, One Nation Under God, which explores that history. But more importantly, in the late 70s and early 80s, we're more involved with fighting the expansion of civil liberties with puritanical moral codes, the moral majority. The 60s and 70s were seen as an era of exploration, social, chemical, okay, even theological. <clears throat> Many movements also entailed an interest in exploring alternate forms of worship. Irene Adler's Drawing Down the Moon makes great reading to understand how the emergence of modern Wicca dovetails with women's liberation and other spiritual seeking of mid-century. But in a moment where the world is about to end at any minute, we don't have time to seek spirituality when the truth, capital T, is right there. And anyway, the moral majority could always hold up Charles Manson, that shoddy pimp whose spiel could only sound convincing to a group he doped with enough acid to kill a horse as the epitome of the counterculture. And there were all sorts of urban legends about Manson, about rituals involving blood or human sacrifice, and you can see how his followers fade into the background, but the legend of the murderous hippie with a side hustle and the satanic can blend into a larger public consciousness. Any interest in the esoteric is counterculture, counter-Christian, therefore satanic. And then there's metal. I don't know why my sister's youth pastor was so obsessed with the Eagles when Motley Crue was right there with the pentagrams. And when ACDC sang Highway to Hell, well, why look for hidden meaning in the name? Against Christ, Devil's Child, that's what my sister said he said. When it's right there. It's not subtext, it's text. Now, as a middle-aged man with advanced degrees in the humanities, 
I see adolescent boundary pushing and an attempt to generate sales with scandalous behavior. And being versed in American culture, I kind of see where the devil stuff came from. When Jimmy Page bought Aleister Crowley's estate and became, however briefly, a Satanist, he wasn't trying to convince legions of fans to join the dark side and raise some literal hell on earth. He was engaging in that old English rocker's tradition of... Well, ripping off the blues, anglicizing a blues trope in order to tap into something. The legend told about bluesman Robert Johnson was that he sold his soul at the crossroads to be able to play. Why else would he turn his back to the audience if not to prevent people from discovering his demonic powers? It had nothing to do with not wanting anyone to steal his licks, couldn't be. Must be satanic. And what's more 1960s British rock musician then ripping off an African-American blues legend. We can give Page credit for adding a bit of European goth esotericism to it, but still, it's an attempt to put himself in the tradition of the blues, or to see the British occult as a version of that tradition, and if we had time, I'd give a whole other meditation on Victorian-era interest in the occult as a version of imperialist cultural appropriation, which also dovetails into the development of Wicca, but, you know, be that as it may... But esoteric symbols look great on an album cover, and Clockwork Orange lyrics appeal to legions of seemingly dispossessed teens. I mean, they did to me. So why wouldn't musicians who just want to make it big in order to enjoy sex, drugs, and money not employ any trip available that can push the edge? Looking at where everyone ended up, talking directly to you, Dave Mustaine, and the pretty blatant money interest you can see in the scene in Penelope Sferis' decline of Western civilization, there's very little daylight between the 80s corporate raiders and the L.A. scene satanic rockers. Part of the same money-grubbing package. But kids could listen to it. And did. And when two kids killed themselves and also listened to Judas Priest, then Metal must be to blame, and Metal went on trial. And Metal was found not guilty. This was 1990, and some things were beginning to happen. In 1989, the Berlin Wall fell, and it looked like there maybe wouldn't be a World War III after all. The tide was beginning to turn, the fear of nuclear annihilation was toning down, and the cultural chaos caused by conservative social politics was now starting to be unignorable. AIDS and crack are what I remember being all over the news in the later part of the 80s and early part of the 90s. The new dangerous music by this point was rap. And I remember an MTV Year in Rock special featuring segments on both the Judas Priest trial and the emergence of gangster rap out of L.A. In 1991, that large existential structural fear was gone, and the paranoia revolving around the stark binary of good versus evil started to recede. It wasn't completely gone, but it was starting to recede. Enough so that an X-File episode, the Han de Verlest, released in 1995, could mock the fear that an underground cult could be working to bring about the end of the world. Okay, there is an underground cult in the episode, but it's engaged in esoteric practices not intended to harm. Sure, kids are introduced to it, but only when they turn 18 and only of their own free will. And the 1996 documentary Paradise Lost, about the killing of three children in Arkansas and the subsequent jailing of three most likely innocent teens for the crime, really cast an intensely skeptical eye on the claim of satanic murder. The culture had turned, things had shifted, 
And I remember, at least amongst my peers, a renewed interest in the counterculture, in 60s stuff, and the possibility of a progressive politics. I remember a new experience of cultural openness to exploration within degrees. I also remember the moralizing of the conservative right during the Clinton years and how they didn't really need to look for underground conspiracies when they had a recognizable devil right there. The new bad guy could openly be their Satan. The right didn't need to conjure images of a hidden devil, and the rest of the culture really just seemed to move on to, to leave conservative politics you know, back in its fever swamp. The satanic panic was more or less over. Columbine brought a brief blip of satanic panic back in, but that quickly became subsumed in psychologizing about video games, and the tide of history rolled on. All right, my apologies. I think I was supposed to give an analysis of the satanic panic, and I kind of got lost in an impressionistic remembrance of what it was like growing up in the early 80s. Sometimes the analytical brain can be hijacked by reverie, and, well, I guess that's what happened. But I hope I can leave you with a few clear thoughts. What I think happened was this. The Cold War induced a paranoia of invasion from the inside, way back in the late 40s, that hit a crescendo with the Red Scare. That died down, and other social and political concerns became more immediate. With the 80s and a heating up of the Cold War, and a staunch old Red Scare Cold Warrior in the White House, we have this other moment of paranoia concerning invasion from within due to this renewed interest in very broad good-versus-evil binary thinking. That merges with fear of the social changes that occurred during the mid-part of the century, and the villain now is not the external enemy, but the internal enemies, the quote-unquote sickos and weirdos who pushed boundaries back in the day. And this gets exacerbated by a media that really wasn't pushing back on dubious claims. Daytime talk shows gave all kinds of outlets an audience. Add to this the greater prevalence of both parents working and concerns about childcare, and the fears of what's happening to our children begin to make more sense. It doesn't seem as if the U.S. is in for another large-scale scare about a satanic conspiracy, but with the shift to social media, conspiracy thinking has become extraordinarily prevalent. I only ask that any listener be extremely cautious about expertise spouted by non-experts and to turn off the screen for a bit and carefully examine the world directly around you. Take a breath. There are plenty of reasons to be scared. I'm still scared. But I don't think the literal devil is really one of them. A warm welcome back to those of you who made it back. And a little bit of advice to take with you before you go. Not all knowledge is safe, and some things you can't unhear. The smartest of you will count your blessings and stay clear of dark corners and dangerous downloads. But those of you more daring who laugh in the face of fear will undoubtedly be back like a moth drawn to the flame for the next installment of Agoraphobia. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.